ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Well, hello, and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up in this week's show, a trick that viruses use to actually spread a lot faster. Cells that are already infected, it appears, bounce viruses off in the direction of fresh, uninfected cells, and that boosts up the infection rate, and we'll hear how it works shortly. Also, we'll find out how plants can switch between different animal pollinators that enables them to avoid getting eaten, which is important. And also, scientists have unlocked the brain's mental map. This is researchers who have discovered how the brain actually works out where we are and where we're going most of the time. And hopefully they'll be able to help me because I've got an atrocious sense of direction. We'll find out how it all works in just a second. Helen. Thanks, Chris. And also this week, we're exploring the science of explosions. We'll be hearing from a pair of scientists who study things that blow up in order to understand what happens during an explosion and how better to protect people against things like landmines. We'll also hear how researchers are modelling the patterns of insurgency, otherwise known as terrorist attacks, in places like Afghanistan. There do seem to be critical element ingredients that make attacks more likely, and that means that we might be better able to predict hotspots of trouble in the future. Chris. Thank you very much, Helen. And also in this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave are going to be explaining the basis of how explosives actually work, including detonating a few things along the way. So if you would like to experiment alongside them, to do that you'll need a plastic film canister, the type that you use to get your films for old-fashioned cameras in. It'll need a lid, you'll want some water, and also one of those fizzy tablets like a hangover remedy, or uh, not that anyone would have a hangover listening to The Naked Scientist, but maybe a fizzy vitamin C tablet. If you haven't got those things, then you can use bicarbonate of soda and some acid like a lemon juice or something like that meanwhile if you have a question for us here at the naked scientists you can email in it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can use twitter our handle is at naked scientists the naked scientists podcast powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.net you're listening to the naked scientists with me chris smith and with me helen scales now this week, scientists have done an exciting piece of work because they've discovered how viruses actually boost up infection rates. Viruses spread far faster than they ought to. But how does it work? Well, Jeff Smith is a researcher at Imperial College in London, and he and his team have been watching under a microscope vaccinia virus, which is a relative of smallpox. In fact, vaccinia was used to immunise people against smallpox when we eradicated it a number of years back. What they found is they watched this virus infecting monolayers, in other words, layers or plates of cells in a dish under a microscope, was that the virus was spreading far faster, in fact, four times faster than it ought to. Now, traditionally, the way in which virologists thought that viruses spread in this sort of way was that when a cell got infected, first of all, that cell would become a virus factory and pump out lots of viruses onto the adjacent surrounding cells, which would then become infected themselves, and they would then infect their neighbours, and so on and so forth, and you get this plaque, as it's known, growing out radially. But the researchers, with their video clips, showed that, in fact, cells that weren't next door to infected cells were getting infected. In some cases, there were viruses popping up out of cells, many other cells further away. And they wanted to know what was going on and why this virus was spreading so quickly. It turns out that when a cell gets infected by this virus, the virus adds to the surface of the cell two chemical markers. In fact, it turns on two genes. One's called A33 and another one's called A36. And that marks the cell now as infected. And this is cunning, because if that infected cell 
before it's even had a chance to make any more virus, if another virus comes along from elsewhere and tries to infect it, the cell then produces the molecular equivalent of a little spring and it pings the virus back off its surface and bounces it away in the direction of other cells that it can then infect. And the researchers discovered this by using colour-coded viruses and also colour-labelled surface structures on the cell components to work out how this is happening. And it's a structure called actin, which is produced to ping the virus off. And, and it can do this multiple times. The virus can be bounced from one cell to the next cell. So this is an intriguing way in which viruses maximise their rate of spread so they only infect cells that are uninfected, thereby maximising the chance of producing lots of infectious viral progeny and escaping from the immune system. Well, that all sounds like viruses are doing a good job at affecting us. Um, so what's this telling us about how we're going to combat the sort of viruses that, uh, that we suffer from? Yes, very good question. And the point they make in their paper, which is in the journal Science this week, is that the rate at which vaccinia virus, the one they studied, grows is actually very, very similar to the rate at which other viruses that are important human pathogens, like herpes simplex, the cold sore virus, also grow. So it might be that these other viruses are also using the same trick. So if we work out how they're doing it, that might be the target for a new kind of antiviral, a new way to block virus spread by fooling the virus into thinking cells are all infected because they've all got these markers on the surface that ping the viruses off when in fact the cells remain uninfected. So it could be a new way of tackling all those terrible viruses we suffer from. Well, back now I'm going to step into the plant world because plants get up to all sorts of clever tricks to persuade animals to pay them a visit and pollinate their flowers. Lots of animals are tempted in by delicious smells and the reward of sugary, energy-rich nectar. But what if those visiting animals don't just take away their nectar reward, pollinating the plant in the process, but they also leave behind a clutch of hungry, plant-munching offspring? Well, a new study has shown how some plants have come up with an ingenious solution to this problem. They reprogram themselves, it turns out, to attract an alternative pollinator that doesn't produce herbivorous youngsters. Publishing in the journal Current Biology, Ian Baldwin from the Max Planck Institute of Chemical Ecology in Germany and colleagues focus on a species of tobacco plant, Nicotiniana attenuata. And this responds to the spit of hawk moth caterpillars and three days after an infestation begin to produce flowers in the morning instead of at night when the hawk moths are at large. Now, they went out and observed thousands of tobacco plants in the wild and discovered that following an attack of hawk moth caterpillars, the flowers don't open as wide and they produce less sweetly scented nectar as well as changing the time that they opened. And this doesn't seem to bother another type of pollinator, the day-flying hummingbirds, and they begin to arrive and take over the role of chief pollinators. Now, the team also studied a genetically modified uh, version of this tobacco plant that lacks a key hormone called jasminate, and we know that this triggers a range of other plant defence mechanisms. Now, unlike the wild plants, these jasminate-free plants didn't change the timing of of their flowering when they had caterpillar spit rubbed into their cut leaves. But they did respond when they were sprayed with the hormones. This was really revealing that key role that jasminate is playing in this chemical pathway between a caterpillar attacking and this change in the flowering times. Do they know what the composition or component of the spit is that's making this happen? They don't yet, no. That will be the next part of the question as to what is it exactly within the spit, but it certainly is the caterpillar spit, something in it, uh, that's doing this. Um, and and uh, but the big question, I think, that kind of leads on for this is, well, why on earth do the plants bother attracting moths in the first place? Why not just use these harmless hummingbirds all the time? Well, it seems that despite laying hungry caterpillars, the moths are actually more efficient pollinators and they can be attracted from miles around. Meanwhile, the hummingbirds don't travel as far and when they do visit flowers, they actually tend to lead to more inbreeding uh, than the, the, the moths do. So all in all, the best strategy for these tobacco plants is to use the reliable moth pollinators up until their hungry young come along then it pays to switch off uh, to switch strategies and start attracting hummingbirds instead and i think that's just very clever indeed i wonder what other plants also use the same strategy do we know or is this just nicotine well we don't know yet um i think this is the first time this kind of switching over has been done but plants do undergo lots of extraordinary adaptations to to deal with and almost control animals so i wouldn't be surprised if we find something similar in other plants i should think the scientists who study plant body clocks because plants have body clocks like we do would be very interested in that because it's obviously totally reversing the plant's 
body clock, almost like a jet lag effect, um, to make the flowers come out at a totally different time of day, which is in- intriguing. Thank you for that, Helen. Now, something that I struggle to do is to find my way around. I've got an atrocious sense of direction. Uh, my wife's sense of direction is so much better than mine, and I'm always getting lost. Perhaps I don't have, in my enterrhinal cortex, a very good grid layout of the world around me. Researchers at UCL this week, this is Christian Dohler and his colleagues, have proved that humans have in their enterrhinal cortex a grid on which they superimpose their position relative to the world around them, and this is how they navigate. Now, the way they did this was to put people into an MRI scanner, Magnetic Resonance Imaging uh, Study, and they watched what happened as the people shown the world through virtual reality headsets navigated around a virtual space, and they were able to follow the patterns of neurological activity. And this work was informed by initial studies in rodents. Now, what they did in rats and mice to start with was to put an electrode into the brain, into this bit of the brain, the enterrhinal cortex, which if you were to find it on yourself, if you were to stick a finger into your ear and carry on going about a finger's length into your brain, where your fingertip ended up would be roughly where your enterrhinal cortex is. What they did was to do that in rats, and they found individual cells there which fire off when the animal is in a certain part of the world. And more specifically, these cells are arranged in a triangular grid pattern. So when the animal moves around, as it crosses over the vertex of a triangle, then that cluster of cells fires off. And so the brain is constantly plotting the position of the animal relative to its environment on this grid, and these cells are marking up where it's going, where it's been, and where it is at the moment. So the researchers want to know, do humans do this? And this MRI study proved that they do. Now, you can't stick electrodes in a human brain, but what you can do is to work out, well, if humans did use the same system, what nerves would become active in the brain in what order? So they built a computer model of how the rodent brain works and used that to simulate what would happen if people were doing this virtual maze and then looked with the MRI scanner to see if those kind of patterns of activity came up, and they did. And so this shows that humans basically move around their environment and find their way about the same way that a rat and a mouse does. So understanding this a bit better informs maybe uh, helping us with diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and other dementing illnesses because those sorts of abilities tend to go and perhaps understanding how they work will help us to remedy them in future. But also it's very important to show that this is how brains actually process spatial information because other memories probably get stored in a very similar way. Do you get virtually lost um, when you're in these, uh, <laughs> in these MRI scanners? It does happen. Well, um, my final piece of news is about a place that's very dear to my heart, the Indian Ocean Island of Madagascar. I was there last summer. And it's home to some extraordinary creatures. In fact, 80% of the plants and over 90% of the animals that live there are found nowhere else on the planet. But a big Malagasy mystery is how on earth did all those species get there? And there's been a new study published in the Nature, uh, journal Nature um, which has provided some strong evidence backing a theory that the ancient ancestors of Madagascar's mammals drifted there over hundreds of kilometres um, from the African mainland, clinging on to rafts of floating vegetation. And that goes for the most famous uh, Malagasy inhabitants, the lemurs, which are a type of primate just like us, only they're unlike any other primates in the rest of the world. Well, these guys used uh, computer climate models to reconstruct ancient oceans. It was Alison, uh, sorry, Jason Alley from the University of Hong Kong and Matthew Huber from Purdue University in the US. And together they've shown that at around the time that lemurs were thought to have arrived from Madagascar, about 60 million years ago, there was surface ocean currents flowing from northern Mozambique eastwards towards Madagascar. Now, today, those currents flow in the opposite direction, and that's a change that took place gradually as Madagascar drifted northwards to its present location. Now, Ali and Huber found that for three or four weeks every century, these eastward currents were strong enough to propel a log from Mozambique all the way to Madagascar in about a month. Well, (laughs) There you go. So you can imagine that, in fact, a small mammal um, probably, you know, some of these ancestors of the lemurs were quite small, um, could feasibly have clung on and survived for that long, perhaps on leaves and insects and things that were also clinging to a log. Um, and it might seem rather unlikely that this would have happened, you know, three or four weeks every century, but genetic studies suggest that it would only have needed to have about a dozen colonisation events to bring all the mammal ancestors to Madagascar, not just lemurs, but carnivores, rodents, and a crazy group of animals called the tenrex, which have to be seen to be believed. Go and check them out. Um, so over the course of 
of tens of millions of years, that's actually becomes highly possible to have happened. Um, and this goes against previous theories that uh, Madagascar's animals walked across um, a- an ancient land bridge uh, from mainland Africa. And that doesn't really work, really, because um, why didn't other things walk across, like antelopes and elephants, which we don't see in Madagascar? So it's really, it's just a very interesting study in ho- showing us how some of Madagascar's amazing wildlife evolved. And it goes to show us how biology can tell us a lot about the geology on Earth. Thank you, Helen. Just goes to show, uh, clinging to a log, very important for human and perhaps other animal evolution. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists, and this week we're talking about the science of explosives, explosions and ordinances. Later on we'll be actually doing our own bit of detonation in kitchen science. Stay tuned for that. But before then, Cambridge University's Graham McShane is with us, and he's been doing some very interesting work on looking at what happens when you blow things up both on land and underwater. Graham, welcome to The Naked Scientists. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yep. So tell us first of all actually what actually happens when something explodes. How, how do you try and understand that? Okay. Well, the first, pl- the starting point, <coughs> excuse me, for any explosion uh, is a lump of solid explosive. And when that explosive detonates, it rapidly converts into high pressure, high temperature gas. And that gas then expands and it pushes on its surroundings. And that, that generates a pressure pulse or a shock wave, which propagates away from the explosion and will strike some kind of structure that's nearby. Uh, and the, the type of loading that that explosion generates depends strongly on, on the medium that's surrounding that explosive. And, and as you said, we've looked at a couple of different types. So one type might be water. So the explosive might be uh, a bomb or a detonation or something under under the water next to a ship so when that that gas expands it pushes on the water compresses the water and sends a shock wave towards your your ship structure so a depth charge a depth charge or something like that that's right something would this would be important that's right and, and water is particularly dangerous from that point of view because it's a it's a very stiff material water it's, it's it's very difficult to compress so that means that the pressures that can build up around the explosive are very large so you can get shock pulses with very high peak pressures so if a, a depth charge does go off within a, a reasonably close proximity of a ship's hull or a submarine or something, how do you work out how much force is then transmitted onto the hull of the vessel? Well, that's very difficult to do. So in terms of a research exercise, there are various things we could do to try and analyse what the loading that, that that blast imparts to the structure is. So one thing we can do is we can try to simulate it in the lab. We can try to experimentally simulate an underwater shock pulse. You don't have to build a warship or something. Well, not quite a warship. We can, we can reduce it down to maybe a small piece of a panel of the side of a ship. Uh, and we can have a, a simulator where we can simulate the type of pressure pulse that you see in water near to an explosion. And then we can measure directly what the, the momentum, you know, the velocity that's imparted to that structure is. Another thing we can do is we can do calculations. So we can, we can run calculations where we simulate the pressure loading on a structure and then we can extract all sorts of information like the deformation of the structure and the forces that are required to hold the panel in place. So does this mean that that people are now able to build better ships and better subs so that when these kind of shockwaves slam into them, they dissipate the energy better so that you don't get a hole punched in the side, for instance? Yes, well, we've certainly come up with a number of ideas for different types of materials that can help to protect ships better. So some types of materials, that some examples are things like sandwich structures, which you sometimes find in aeroplanes to provide you with a very light and stiff structure. So these types of structures, you have solid face sheets with a a lightweight deformable core in between them. And and that core can crush and and dissipate some energy. And these types of structures are very good at, at, at mitigating the effects of a blast near to the structure. But then these things are much more expensive than conventional uh, uh, materials, so there's always a question of, of how much money you're prepared to spend to protect your ship. But then, given the massive cost of a ship, it, it probably must be worth that, because if you lose the vessel you've lost a huge amount of it. That's right, that's right, but then the cost could be enormous it could be a huge amount extra I mean, these types of materials that we've looked at um, are, are very much more complicated than a solid steel panel uh, you have to think about how to fabricate these things, how to make a ship scale structure out of them, and then how to maintain them as well. So there are lots of added costs, but, but there are solutions that work well. Uh, and looking on land, yeah. can you correlate what you understand and, and what happens in uh, the water aquatic environment to what happens on land? Because obviously air is a fluid too, it's just a slightly thinner one. 
That's right, yeah. I mean, an explosive in air shares many characteristics with an explosion in water. It starts off with the same basic physical principles. You start off with an explosive which converts to a gas and expands and it compresses the air. The, the big difference is that the air doesn't compress so much. Um, so the, the pressures that you generate are different. And also the way that the shock pulse interacts with the structure is also different in air and in land. Uh, sorry, in air and in, in water. Um, in, in water, the the, the, the when the shock pulse reflects off of a ship, it can cause the water to, to, to open apart, to cavitate. That doesn't really happen in air. Uh, so there are different phenomena going on, and that affects what, what your f- optimal solutions are for your material design. Presumably also, when something explodes on land, it also doesn't just have liquid to play with, it's also got whatever is in the environment around it. So if you're detonating a landmine, yes. there will be a huge amount of material from the ground emitted upwards and projected up alongside that rush of air, which in itself is, is going to be devastatingly harmful because it presumably will be like sandpaper a thousandfold over, won't it? Absolutely. A, a, a landmine detonation is very different from an explosion uh, in, in free air far away from anything else. Uh, in a landmine explosion, your, your explosive is initially buried under a layer of soil so that gas, when it tries to expand, it has to compress that soil uh, and shockwaves pass through the soil. But then the soil then, then it expands out and it sprays at the structure at very high velocities. So the loading is very much more complicated uh, for a landmine. Uh, and it's taken a lot of research effort to understand what that loading is. Uh, never mind think about what materials uh, are best for protecting vehicles against that type of so loading. So it's, it's not simply just the explosive force of a mine going off. It's the fact that all that material is ejected to and it totally changes the dynamics of an of an explosion absolutely well there are a number of factors in it i mean first off when when the, when the soil starts to move it starts to move extremely quickly so it compresses the air around it and it'll send a shock wave ahead of it so there is a bit of an air blast going on there as well but then following that you've got the sand flying behind it at very high speed and then behind that you've got all the gases the remnants of the explosive which follow behind that so it's a very complicated loading scenario and how do you study that well, again, we've, we've got this combination of, of, of simple experimental techniques to try and capture the physics of what's going on and, and computational methods that can maybe capture more of the real landmine event. Uh, we can attempt, to some extent, to simulate in the lab a landmine, but, but our, our site, the engineering department, is, is, is a city centre location. <laughs> it's not really suitable for setting off landmines, so we have to think of other ways of, of throwing soil at structures at high speed. So that's one aspect of the research. And again, we can do a similar thing. We can measure how the structure deforms and responds. We can also use computation as well, where we can try and simulate the sort of sand flows that are generated by these things and look at how different types of materials will behave. Is this why these improvised explosive devices are so devastating in places like Afghanistan? Because when a car, a Land Rover, whatever goes over it, if it hasn't got appropriate protection then it's having to cope with this incredible force which is all directed at one point on the vehicle. Precisely. It's very difficult to protect vehicles against this extreme type of loading. Um, you can design vehicles to, 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 to try and protect the troops inside. You can have very large vehicles with very heavy floors, very far off the ground, because the further away from the landmine you can get, the, 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 the lower the, the loads that the landmine imparts on your vehicle. Um, but for a lightweight vehicle like a Land Rover or something like that, it's very difficult to do that. So you have to try and think of some lightweight solutions. And it's very difficult to combine the lightweight that you need in a mobile vehicle and also protection against this, this rather severe loading. And the strategy you outline for ships of having this sort of multi-laminar structure, that would work, but just the weight would be a problem? Well, or not? No, uh, they, they, that would work as well. Um, you've got to think about, you've got this sort of sandwich structure, this layered structure. You've got to think about how heavy is how, how much protection can you provide for the same mass of armour. So if I had a solid steel plate... I could compare that with a sandwich plate of the same mass and, and it would be more expensive to make but it's likely to be stiffer, it, the core can absorb some energy so it's likely to give you some, some performance benefits overall. The prediction is there's something like 110 million landmines scattered around the earth. Um, people are stepping on them all the time, not just driving land rovers over yeah. them, and they're often civilians. Yes. Um, is there anything we can do for people who live in at-risk areas so they could wear something to avoid this sandpapering of all their legs to basically strip all the flesh off, which is what these mines are doing to them, isn't it? Yes, that's right. This, that's a very difficult problem to solve. 
Um, the problem is is the, the the intensity of the loading, and when you step on a mine, you're very very close to it. As I say, the further you can get away from a landmine, the the better you are. Uh, to step on a landmine, it's a very severe loading. It's very hard to think of material solutions to that. The best solutions are try to are to try to remove the landmines somehow, to try to detect them, uh, and to improve vehicles. So you can improve vehicles so that people can get into these areas, find the landmines, and remove them. I think that's a more effective solution. Well, just before we wrap this up with with Graham, Helen, you've actually had some experience of this, haven't you? This uh, explosions up close and personal. That's right. Well, actually, it's the underwater um, explosions that I've unfortunately had a very close uh, encounter with. Um, And it it really kind of hit home to me just uh, how quickly and how far underwater explosions reach. Because I was diving um, several years ago in Malaysia and unfortunately was in the vicinity of a fish bomb that was thrown in the water. Now, I should just explain quickly that um, across Southeast Asia, this is um, um, a, a quite prevalent way of catching fish. It's actually illegal in many countries because it's very damaging, um, not only to the people who occasionally have bombs going off in their hands, but also to the environment. Um, but I was in the water and uh, this enormously loud bang sound ripped through the water. I felt it all the way through my insides um, and it was absolutely terrifying. Um, and I, I guess I knew what it was. So I knew that this, this could happen. So I got out of the water as quickly and safely as I could, um, and then noticed that the fisherman who'd put this bomb in was miles away. He was actually right across on the horizon. Uh, I could just about see him. And I just couldn't believe that this had travelled, you know, quite so far and was still so powerful as to make me feel like, I, you know, if it had come any closer, it might, might have deafened me or something. It was terrifying. Yes, it, it sounds like a, a pretty terrifying experience. It just goes to show how efficiently a blast pulse can propagate through water. Although that fisherman was quite some distance away, he, even his small bit of explosive would have created quite big pressures that would have propagated for quite a large distance. And I assume if he'd been any closer, I would have been in res- at risk of things like my eardrums rupturing and even my organs sort of damaging if it had been you know, really very close. Absolutely, yes. A, 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 sh- a shock pressure hitting the body will do all sorts of damage uh, and it's best avoided so I can understand why they're keen to ban that kind of practice. Absolutely. I know now what those poor fish are feeling as well. So, uh, yes, it was a terrifying experience indeed. Yes, be grateful you're not a fish, Helen, even though you're called scales. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for sharing that, though. It's fascinating. Thank you, Graham, for commenting on this. Graham McShane, who is from the engineering department at Cambridge University, where he's working on how explosions go off and what the consequences are and perhaps how we can design better ways of mitigating against damage caused by those kinds of explosions. Well, another useful way of understanding explosions and explosive materials is to understand the shock waves that they create and how these affect other materials, including living tissue. Dr Bill Proud divides his time between the Cavendish Labs here in Cambridge and the Institute of Shock Physics at Imperial College in London, and he's found some time to join us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for coming along. Oh, very, very happy to be here. Now, um, we've already mentioned the word shockwave. What are these? Well, I think the easiest way to consider them is um, if you make any kind of sound in the room, any kind of uh, noise, you're sending out uh, pressure pulses through the air. And people have generally heard of a thing called the speed of sound. And uh, they, most uh, people doing A-levels, for example, say you're, you know, 330 metres a second. The thing about a shockwave, though, is that the pressure pulse is supersonic with respect to the material it's going through. It's going faster than the speed of sound. It's going faster right. than the speed of sound and... The, the thing here is in the uncompressed material. So what you're doing is these pulses, for example, under normal explosive loading, you can uh, take the density up to, a, say, a, a factor of two times higher. You're compressing things by a factor of two compared to what they would be like under normal conditions. And if you're going to nuclear weapons, if you're going really crazy, then you can uh, compress things to sort of five times their normal volume. And uh, as well as this sort of massive increase in density... The temperature at which those materials are can jump up several thousand degrees centigrade, but on a time scale of less than a microsecond. So these are they're, they're happening very, very quickly. Um, so how on earth do we go about actually studying them? Well, uh, people have been trying to study the effects of these things for a variety of reasons. Um, things like quarrying and mining and mineral extraction, all use and demolition of buildings, etc. All use explosives. And um, historically, um, even back in the Tudor times, people were trying to uh, kill each other using uh, quite large quantities of explosives. Um, up until, say, about the end of the 19th century, people generally um, blew things up and looked at the after effects. 
But if you if you are interested in photography at all, there's a Edward Mybridge uh, who looked at horses galloping or all four hooves off the ground at the same time in the 1870s, and he was using cameras, which uh, were very much like normal cameras, these uh, normal film cameras, that's which probably be regarded as old-fashioned technology these days. Um, and these were developed and advanced, and a gentleman called Courtney Pratt, who was working in the Cavendish Laboratory in the 1940s and 50s, he developed a camera called the Image Converter Camera, and that could take an image on a microsecond timescale. And at the present time, there were cameras made uh, in the UK, which is one of the leading uh, countries in terms of this type of camera development. Uh, they can take images a billion frames a second. So you're going very, sub, very fast. sub thousand millionth of a second, basically, and you can capture an image. So this, these cameras are now letting you really starting to, to see much, much more detail of the anatomy uh, of these explosions. Exactly. You can see where materials break. You can see how they change shape, um, how long it takes for things to happen. Because one of the important differences between doing things at a low rate and doing things at a high rate is that at a high rate, um, things happen differently. You can imagine getting uh, some shopping from a supermarket and you get one of those really flimsy um, plastic bags because you don't want to pay for the reusable bag and you walk down the street and the handles stretch and that's called creep. That's a, a very low rate, we'd say. It takes a long time to happen. That's quite a slow thing that it's happens. It's a very slow yep. process. Right. Whereas a, a shock is would be a case of trying to yank that handle on the plastic bag apart and then when it does break, after you scream, because you actually discover the plastic's really quite strong at that point, um, you then discover that it sort of breaks. It doesn't stretch. It has fractures across the surface. And this is the important difference. As you go to these very high rates, you find that the material breaks in a different fashion because it doesn't have the time to break in a fashion that you would consider the normal way it's going to behave. And that's what makes it an interesting field of study. OK, so we've got these cameras that are now extremely fast, but how are we actually using these to, to study shockwaves? How are, we, how are we employing these to understand more about what's happening when explosions happen? Well, the, the, the cameras are, are very useful because they give you a full field view of what's going on. Um, there's also gauges that you can put inside. So these little sensors that you put inside the target... And uh, they give you pressure, say, versus time. The main thing that you do experimentally is try to simplify the scenario. So take things from, say, a three-dimensional case, you know, where things are, you know, have very irregular shapes, make them, say, nice flat plates of material and do impacts on those. So instead of... And the other thing you can do that simplifies the situation is to... Instead of using explosives, and for, for those people so interested, explosives have a sort of triangular pressure shape, you can uh, use a thing called a plate impact gun. You fire a flat-ended projectile at a target, and that puts in a, a square-shaped pressure pulse. And you can control the height of that pressure pulse and the duration of that pressure pulse independently of one another. So you can really probe the space, the pressure, temperature, volume, space that the material can occupy under these very high loadings. And then relate it to the more complicated three-dimensional case of a structure or a building um, being exploded or being hit by an object in order to understand. If you can understand how things work in one dimension, you've got a chance in three dimensions. If you don't understand one dimension, as soon as you get to the real world, things are going to get terribly difficult quite quickly. And are you mostly concerned with uh, with buildings and structures and, and things that, that we create, or also living living matter and and people as well? Um, well, in in the, both in the Cavendish and in the Imperial um, for a number of years now, we've been looking at a whole variety of materials. So metals, um, quite commonly looked at composites as used in aircraft, bird strike, things like that. We were quite interested in bird strike. That's an interesting subject because there's a little cycle happens there. People for a few years actually use um, dead uh, birds to hit aircraft with. Frozen chickens, I heard. Uh, for, yeah, that's, that's, that's the great story about, uh, you know, you have to defrost the chicken out of Sainsbury's or wherever you buy it um, before you fire it at the train, otherwise there's horrendous damage. So people use uh, real birds and then they get a bit worried about that because it's a bit messy and smelly. And uh, you swap to uh, plastic, uh, bags, plastic bags full of gelatin and wood. The wood represents the backbone of the bird. And uh, they go through that. And then after a while, they cycle back to using real birds. And it depends who retires and when, when they swap. So as well as doing bird strike, you might consider how do um, shockwaves genetically modify the material under very low 
much lower impact conditions. Hit something hard enough, you'll take up the temperature, you'll kill it just by the temperature. Or the pressure will rupture the cell membranes. If you lose lower pressures, you can modify the materials ever so slightly. Most of those modifications will, of course, ultimately kill the, uh, the living organism. Here we're thinking about cells, thinking about spores, um, and even, in some cases, sort of uh, DNA and that kind so of So we materials. want to deliberately kill, use this as a way of actually killing things um, like bugs? There, 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 is, uh, there is actually a greater push in things like uh, even the, uh, the bread industry, in the food industry. You've got these very long tubes full of liquids, powders, uh, in some cases gases, that are all used in food production. And um, how do you, st- if something goes wrong there, how do you sterilise? You can pass chemicals down it, but there's also a big aim in uh, things like uh, flour production industries to pulse pressure of materials and uh, sort of basically uh, knock the uh, the microbes out by knock, by destroying their membranes. Making use of shockwaves. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you very much for giving us oh, a fantastic introduction to shockwaves. And I had no idea that they went quite so far into quite so many different aspects of our lives. That was Dr Bill Proud, the shock researcher at Cambridge University and Imperial College London. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Helen Scales. If you'd like to get in contact through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Thank you, Helen. Now, the field of munitions, in other words, weaponry like shells and mortars, torpedoes and so on, In this particular domain, safety is crucial. If you're handling something that's highly explosive, the last thing you want is for it to go off in your own hands or the hands of those people who are transporting it for you. So this week, Mira Senthalingam has been down to find out how scientists are trying to ensure that the munitions we're creating now that are being used in warfare only go off when they're supposed to. This week, I've come along to the Defence Academy of the United Kingdom, located in Shrivenham in Swindon, to find out about how the munitions used today in warfare are made as safe as possible and basically made sure that they don't go off when they shouldn't. And with me is Jackie Akavan, who's the head of the Centre for Defence Chemistry at Cranfield University. We've got a range of mortars in front of us, and how do these work? You have at the very bottom a propellant, and then before that you have to ignite the propellant so you'd have like an augmenting charge and then that would send the mortar up. When the mortar hits its target, the top of it will be squashed and then a pin will go through your explosive which then will send a shockwave into your main charge which does all the damage. Traditionally, how do these types of munitions work really? So what explosives do they contain? Okay, well, if you just go into the top bit, which is your fusing system, you would have a primary explosive in there, which is, generally speaking, it would contain lead azide, which is very sensitive. And then your main charge will be a combination of TNT, trinitrotoluene, with RDX. Um, RDX stands for Research Development X. It is an explosive. Its proper name is cyclotrimethylene trinitramine. <laughs> And these materials aren't really in use as much anymore. So why aren't they around? What were the flaws um, with these original designs? We do still use TNT in RDX, but we're trying to move away from TNT. Um, the reason is, is that, when you, first of all, when you fill uh, a munition with TNT, it shrinks when it cools down. What you do, you heat TNT up, it melts at 81 degrees centigrade, and then you put in your other explosive, and then you cool it down, but you have to be very careful of the shrinkage. And also, over time, it tends to move around so you often, it often comes out the um, the fusing system where you screw it in you see these yellow crystals and by moving around you can sensitize the actual explosive you might leave cracks and voids in the explosive and also around the top where it's coming out it's quite sensitive so now one way your team here are trying to get around some of these problems is by designing insensitive munitions Yes, that's right. Insensitive munitions is a term to describe munition that, in an accident, it won't detonate. First thing, we've got to take TNT out. So we have like RDX, which looks like sugar, and so we, we need to hold it in something else, but not TNT. So the most common thing now is using a plastic, uh, a polymer, and these new ones are called polymer-bonded explosives. But polymers are inert, whereas TNT is energetic, so we can't put too much in. So we tend to put 
got about 95% of our high explosive with a small amount of polymer. It's like baking a cake where the polymer is your egg and the rest of the dry ingredients like the flour and sugar is your explosive. And then when you mix it, as we do, and then you put it into the oven and like baking a cake, the actual composition goes solid. But it does form a very brittle type material. So what we tend to do is add one more ingredient, uh, like uh, an oil called a plasticizer, and that just gives ductility to the polymer. So if you drop it and it did crack, it it wouldn't go off. Having put all these materials together then to make an insensitive munition, how do you go about making sure that this thing won't detonate under the wrong circumstances? What we tend to do is to do some preliminary tests, um, small-scale powder tests, and this is when we manufacture um, a very small quantity. We'll go and drop a weight on it, we'll hit it with a hammer, we'll heat it up. There are standard tests that we actually do. And you're now going to take me along to your testing hall to see how some of these munitions are tested? Yes, we're going to go to the test house next. We're now in our test house. Here we have James Padfield, who's a research fellow at the university, and he's going to explain everything about the testing here. Hi, Mira. We have several tests here. I'll run you through a few of them. We have the Rotter test machine that measures a material's sensitiveness to impact when it gets dropped or something hits it. We have a friction test, an electric spark test, and we also have tests that measure the effect of heating and um, spark from a flame. We're looking for a very benign reaction, a sort of partial burn perhaps, rather than a full explosion from an insensitive munition. In front of us now we have the Rotter test, which tests to see how impact will affect a munition. There's a large tower about four metres in height in front of me. Um, What are the various components of this experiment, James? We put a small sample of the explosive into the chamber at the bottom of the test, There's a five kilogram weight that we winch up the tower to a predetermined height and we drop the weight on the explosive. Now there's a small cap here um, that you would actually put the explosive into. The cap has a diameter of less than a centimetre? About that, yes. And the, the sample size we use is around about 30 milligrams. So yes, very small amount. What explosive are we going to test now? This is going to be a sample of RDX. What height are you going to drop the weight from? Um, I'm going to drop it from around about a metre and a half. Okay, so I've loaded the sample into the brass cap. Okay, so you're just putting that at the bottom of the tower from which the weight will be dropped. So the weight is being lifted up to a height of 150 centimetres. Okay, let's go. So now we examine the sample... there's smoke coming out yes there's smoke and you can see the brass cap has been shattered by the rdx going off when the weight hits it so this was a definite explosion then yes so that was a height of 150 centimeters and so how this works is the higher the height at which it doesn't go off the better yes that's right and now coming back to you jackie so having done these various experiments on a small scale i imagine you must have to test these using much greater quantities in order to see if they're usable in actual munitions yes i mean once it passed all our tests and then it will now go into actually a warhead and then made up into a munition the whole munition plus a packaging plus the container will then need to be tested on a large scale and this then will be taken obviously to maybe Salisbury Plain or somewhere where this can be done. A few tests might involve dropping it from a height, maybe impact via a fragment, heating it up, putting it on a bonfire. The response of these tests must be burning, not detonation. Are these insensitive munitions in use now then? Um, There aren't that many um, actually been in use. Storm Shadow is certainly one that's actually been classed as insensitive munition. In the future, yes, definitely all of them will be classed as insensitive. No new munitions will be allowed to be used, particularly for um, the MOD, unless they are insensitive. That was Professor Jackie Agavan and before that Dr James Padfield, both from Cranfield University, explaining to our own Mira Synthalingham about the chemistry of insensitive munitions and how such munitions are tested. Thank you, Helen. And here on The Naked Scientist this week, we are talking about the science of explosions, and one group of people who often use them are insurgents, in other words, terrorists. We're hearing about this on almost a daily basis in Afghanistan and, and also at times in Iraq. 
Now it turns out that by studying the pattern of these events, we might be able to learn something and maybe even predict when they're going to happen. And Professor Michael Spagat, who is at the Royal Holloway, uh, is working on this very thing. Hello, Michael. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Do tell us a little bit about this work, which you call the ecology of insurgency. Okay, the reason we call it the ecology of insurgency is uh, because we, we think of the conflict process as being a struggle over some kind of limited resource. Um, limited resource might be various things. So, for example, it might be space or it might be something more like media attention. Uh, so if you imagine that there are uh, a soup of insurgent units out there, guerrilla cells, and, and then there are also um, anti-insurgent units that are that are seeking them out, sort of shuffling around in space and randomly bumping into each other. Uh, sometimes insurgent groups might bump into one another and they might coalesce into a stronger group. Sometimes uh, they might feel under pressure and fragment into um, a bunch of uh, smaller, weaker groups. Or insurgents might encounter anti-insurgent forces, in which case there could be a bloody clash and, 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 and there could be casualties. At the same time, insurgent groups might be planning attacks, which we think of as um, a, a way of trying to call attention to themselves, for example, through getting media attention. And we think of this attack planning process as very much in the same way that uh, people plan the routes that they take uh, driving home from work, for example, uh, where they're trying to predict what other people are doing. They're trying to predict which roads are going to be empty and that they'll be able to drive down relatively easily. In the same way, insurgents are trying to predict what other insurgents are trying to do, struggling for this media attention. What, what they would want to do would be to launch attacks when other groups aren't launching attacks, but much in the manner that we get traffic jams, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, might be wrong in their predictions and they, they might hope that a certain road will be clear because the last three days it's been clear and then it might turn out not, not to be clear. So you're saying if we understand the pattern of these processes, then we'll be in a position to predict them? Yes, I think you know, we can at least get a leg up in trying to predict them. I don't, I don't think you know we can ever predict them with with complete accuracy. But but yes, you can see certain patterns of uh, quiet day, quiet day, heavy day. You know what what happens on the fourth day after you've had uh, a pattern like that for the last three days. These people aren't daft, though, and now you've published this paper, which you published before Christmas just in Nature, wasn't it? Um, are they potentially going to read your paper and think, well, now we'll change our tactics, and uh, then you'll have to invent a new model? I don't think that uh, such a thing would, would, would happen. I mean, in just in the, in the same way that, uh, you know, seeing that uh, traffic patterns tend to be bursty or that that uh, you know somehow you can have um, a particular route is quiet for a long time and then and then busy even if drivers have all that knowledge i think it's not going to undo the fundamental processes of uh, second guessing one another that leads to the pattern in the first place is it still intriguing to think that in the same way as you see these fluxes in the way traffic jams build up in different routes around cities that you're seeing the same pattern with insurgency how should then people who are having to deal with insurgency, how should they change their practice in order to either minimise the impact of the insurgents or to get rid of them? You know, the two things we find, one one is this bursty pattern so that you, you, you have sort of alternation of uh, quiet periods and then, and, and then suddenly lot, lots of attacks very, very quickly. Um, and then the second thing we, we find is when you look at the size distribution of the events, that is, uh, how many events do you have in which one person is killed, how many with two, how many with three, etc., up to attacks where hundreds of people are killed. What we find is that you get a lot more of the large events than you might have thought without ac actually looking at the, at the data and the modeling. So we're finding, on the one hand, this bursty pattern where you, you, you suddenly get lots of events, and then also we have um, large events are relatively common. And, and what that means is, say, in terms of emergency planning, that you've got to be ready with a lot of spare capacity because the system can be overloaded quite easily. Uh, when you suddenly get lots of attacks and some of them are large. 
indeed. Michael, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. That was Michael Spigat from the Royal Holloway at the University of London, and he was explaining uh, how we can study outbreaks of insurgency in the same way to understanding how a natural ecosystem works, and that might help us to, to deal with the problem better. Helen? We're talking explosions this week, so Ben and Dave have leapt at the chance for an explosive kitchen science. This week they're going to be using fireworks to explain the difference between low explosives, things like gunpowder that burn to produce lots of gas, and high explosives, really dangerous stuff like dynamite that sends out these explosive shockwaves faster than the speed of sound. But don't worry, we've not let them get their hands on any dynamite. This week's kitchen science is positively explosive, but Dave assures me that there is an element of this that you can do at home. You don't need to be trained in munitions. So, Dave, what are we doing this week? What you need for this is a normal plastic film canister, particularly the ones where the lids which go inside rather than around the outside seem to work slightly better. Now, when you say film canister, you mean for old-fashioned cameras when you used to have to put a film in the camera and then send that away to have it processed? Yeah, it does seem a bit archaic these days, but if you've got any lying around, or quite often places which develop film will give you them for free, get hold of one of these. And then you also need some fizzy tablets, something like a fizzy vitamin C tablet or an Alka-Seltzer. What's this got to do with explosions, though? Well, if we get one of these fizzy vitamin C tablets and put it in some water you get quite an interesting effect, which you've probably seen before. Well, the name gives it away, doesn't it? They're fizzy, they fizz, they create lots of gas. That's right. You've got two things we're interested in inside the tablet. One of them is some bicarbonate of soda, which locked up inside it, you've got the gas carbon dioxide. And the other one is a kind of acid which is inactive until you dissolve it in something. So then once the acid dissolves, you get the same reaction that you see with vinegar and bicarb or lemon juice and bicarb, and you get carbon dioxide released, and that's what comes out in all the bubbles. That's right. Essentially, you've got a reaction which creates gas. Now, I've seen that done many a time. I would never have called it explosive. Well, a lot of low explosives, things like gunpowder, are also exactly the same things. They're just reactions which produce gas. But what we're going to do with this now is instead of just putting the tablet in some water, which is kind of boring you've seen before, it's going to put it in some water inside a sealed film canister. So we're not actually going to let that gas escape and the pressure's going to build up and I guess this is where our explosion's going to come in. Yeah, that's right. So you get the film canister and fill it halfway up with water. OK, about half full, I see. Now we have a vitamin C tablet. They're quite big, these. Is it going to be better if we break it in half? It seems to work fine with halves, and it seems wasteful to use a whole one at a time. That way you get to have twice as much fun. <laughs> OK, so now we break our vitamin C tablet in half, and we drop it into the film canister, and immediately it starts to fizz. So I guess now... We need to put the lid on and back off. Yeah, don't go back to it too soon. It can take a couple of minutes to go off. We have to wait a little while, so the reaction's going on in there. It's releasing lots of gas. But why does this build-up in pressure result in an explosion? Well, basically because the pressure builds up and up and up until something gives way. And in this case, the first thing to give way is the lid's going to fall off the film canister. But film canisters are made quite well, so the lids stay on to quite high pressures, and all that gas is released all at once, and you should get quite a good pop, so small explosion... <laughs> OK, so we're waiting for a small explosion, but this can't be how most explosives really work, surely? There's two types of explosives. There's a low explosive, things like gunpowder, which are used to shoot bullets out of guns. Oh! <laughs> well, the canister itself managed to fly completely over our heads. Now, that did throw some water everywhere when it came out. Could that be a risk if people try this at home? Yes, that's why you shouldn't go close and about two metres away from it, because you might get some of that kind of fizzy water in your eyes and that's going to hurt. So as long as you stay a couple of metres away and dodge the falling film canister, it should be fine. At least the film canister is very light, so if it does hit you on the head, it shouldn't hurt too much. But we were saying there are two different types of explosives. Well, there's two main types of explosive. One of them is low explosive, things like gunpowder. I've got a little pile of it here. OK, so now this is the bit that you shouldn't do at home. We're actually going to set a light to some gunpowder and see what happens. Now, if I light a blowtorch and then use this to light the gunpowder... OK, well, it, it didn't go bang. It was very bright. It, there was lots of smoke. It's really quite smelly, but it definitely didn't go bang. Now, I think of gunpowder as being something that goes bang. No, gunpowder doesn't explode on its own. It doesn't make a bang on its own. What you have to do to make it go bang is to contain it in some way. So here I've got a little bit of gunpowder contained in a cardboard tube. This means that when it burns, all that gas is released and the pressure will build up and up and up until something breaks, just like the film canister. And we can see what happens with this. 
Dave's managed to make it sound scientific, but by a bit of gunpowder contained within a cardboard tube, you mean a banger, don't you, Dave? Yes, I did just buy a banger. <laughs> OK, so let's get this lit. And we're lighting the fuse now. Wow, that was really quite loud. I'm glad I was standing far enough away for it to not hurt my ears. That was an almighty bang. But there was less gunpowder in that banger than you set a light to earlier. And a very different response. Well, before the gas was all released smoothly over maybe a quarter of a second, half a second, was in this case all the gas was released inside the banger. The pressure built right up and it was all released in maybe a hundredth of a second. That caused the air to vibrate and you get this really strong bang noise. So that's great for small explosions, for bangers, for bullets and so on. But you said that there's a, another type of explosive. Yes, there's another type of explosive which is even more dangerous called high explosives. Things like TNT or dynamite. And the difference between these and low explosives is in the chemistry. With low explosives, they've normally got the fuel and the oxidizer, which react together to create all the gas in two separate materials. So there's quite a long way apart, so they relatively burn quite slowly. In a high explosive, often the fuel and the oxidizer are in the same molecule, which means that they can react together incredibly quickly. I can see how the chemistry means that the reaction would be a different speed, but surely it still does the same thing, produces a lot of gas, which increases the pressure, and that breaks apart whatever's containing it. In fact, they can just burn very quickly if you just set light to them. But if you apply a shock to them, so you hit them hard with something, um, this shockwave can trigger the burning. And so you get a shockwave moving through the material, and as it moves through the material, you get a load of gas produced, which makes the shockwave stronger, which makes it move through the material faster, which means you get a stronger shockwave and stronger shockwave and stronger shockwave. So it used up all the explosive, and yet this incredibly damaging high-pressure wave which comes out of them and can do a lot of damage. So we obviously need to be very careful, and I assume you don't have any dynamite to show us. No. Well, I think that's probably for the best. But that's all we have for this explosive kitchen science. We have some high-speed video footage of bangers going off, of piles of gunpowder being set alight, and, of course, of film canisters flinging themselves over our heads. So check that out at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, and we'll be back with more experiments next week. Thanks, guys. That was Ben and Dave getting all explosive on us for Kitchen Science. Thank you, Helen. Now, here on The Naked Scientists, uh, we are talking about explosions, and I've got some questions for our guests. We've got um, Bill Proud and uh, Graham McShane here. We're talking about explosions. John in Colchester says, why or how practical would it be to use a massive microwave, effectively, mounted on the top of a vehicle and beam down 2 gigahertz of 1 kilowatt energy in front of the vehicle in order to make sure that there, were no- there was nothing lurking underground in front of it? Bill. Um, the vehicles are generally moving along the road at some speed, you know, say 30 miles an hour. Um, this, the article you're trying to cause to explode is buried underground, so you have to make sure that the waves can actually reach into the explosive. And all of this has got to happen in the millisecond or so that you've got in front of the vehicle. So you need a huge amount of power, and you can't mount that much power and drive it down the road basically baking the road in front of you to the required temperature um, and the same thing. And also think about what would happen to the wildlife as well and the general ecology around us as we're sending out that much power. Excellent. Well, we heard from Ben in Peterborough who wants to know, um, at the Manchester 1995 bombings, it seemed that windows were, were breaking but around corners and around bends. What's, what's going on there? Graham, what do you think? Yes, well, when a, a blast pulse hits a surface, some fraction of that blast pulse will reflect off of that surface. And depending on the, the, the geography of the area and, and the properties of the surface and the size of the bomb, the, the blast could go around many corners. It could follow quite a tortuous route reflecting off various surfaces, so it could cause damage to quite a large area. So it's all down to reflections, basically. Exactly. Reflections. Okay. Bill, very quickly, uh, Slack Gigamon 7639, listening in Second Life. Hello to all of you Second Lifers. How can you possibly take pictures at, se- at billions of frames every second? Well, uh, number one, you need a very intense bright light source. So some people actually use explosives to do the lighting for the, uh, for the system. And the next thing you need is a thing called uh, a CCD charge capture device or CMOS um, camera and what you're doing is switching on high voltages in and out very very quickly so it's high voltage pulses on a nanosecond duration with explosive as the lighting so these can be quite destructive experiments even if you're doing quite small scale experiments great well now i think it's time to go back to diana for this week's question of the week hello yes it's time to climb the mizzen and let down the yardarm or maybe just fire up the giant tanker engine for this question hi naked scientists i'm jan from norwich and i'm the captain of a large oil tanker I have a question about pigeons. 
We often get flocks of wild and racing pigeons land on our decks and they can stay for weeks until the crew have fattened them up for the pot, that is. My question is this. Does the steel in the structure of the ship, which is about 50,000 tons, affect the pigeons' navigation system? I have heard that they rely in part on the Earth's magnetic field. So, could a large metal ship push a bird's internal compass off-centre? I'm Michael Brook, and I work in the zoology department at Cambridge, and amongst other roles, I'm curator of birds in the museum. I think that's fairly unlikely, even if it was migrating, crossing the sea in conditions where it was using the magnetic compass. The distance over which a ship would cause distortion of that compass would really be pretty tiny. My guess, and it is a guess, would be over maybe a maximum of 100 metres, and therefore, on that basis, the bird wouldn't have been pulled off course by the tanker, much more a case of the bird feeling knackered and seeing a ship and landing on the ship. So I guess once aboard a ship, a pigeon might be more or less inclined to leave depending on various factors. So some of the factors could be you know, the extent to which it had exhausted its fat, its fuel reserves. Obviously also another factor would be whether the crew were feeding it and obviously if it was a time of year when the species was naturally migrating that would put it in a mindset to press on regardless. Domestic pigeons that we see around Britain derive from a wild species, the rock dove, but it's now very difficult to establish what is the natural distribution of the rock doves because rock doves have interbred with the domestic pigeons and those domestic pigeons have been shifted around the world by people so now you can encounter them in most continents and the more distant continents like Australia and New Zealand we can be sure they've been introduced to by man but for example Southeast Asia there may be a degree of uncertainty. It seems a pigeon will quite happily sit about on a boat as long as there's some food to be had but now we've another outdoor activity for you to ponder next week. I'm David from North Wales. I'm interested to know whether leaving washing out on a line during freezing weather, even though it might be sunny, is a good idea. Email us with what you think the answer is. Does water evaporate off towels in the cold weather? The address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. Diana, thank you very much. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Graham McShane, Bill Proud and Michael Spagat, and also to our wonderful production team, Mira Senthalingam, Ben Vowsler, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. Next week we are looking at augmented reality, visors you can wear that tell you how to repair your car so that you don't have to get the Haynes manual out. See you next time. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>